morning, everyone. Welcome to the second week of our study of the book of James this morning. Uh, there are notes going out, so just an aside, since uh, my gift is teaching, the reason I give you notes is because I want to help you remember. How many of you ever got through college or high school without ever taking a note? No, you did not. I know better. I saw your notebook, so. So anyway, you, you will retain more of what you interact with, and there's a physical connection when you put a pen in your hand and you write something down on a piece of paper, especially if you write something that comes to mind that's not even in the notes. So I encourage you to do that, maybe a point of application or uh, some insight that just was triggered in your, met, in your head by what was said or whatever. But we are in the book of James, and we're looking at the experience of trials, the trying of our faith. And I need to turn this little thing on I forgot about. And um, this morning, I'm hoping, I'm hoping, hoping, hoping to accomplish verses 5 to 18. Okay, we'll see. I'll do my best. Um, but uh, before we begin this morning, let's look to God who is going to give us this, um, this bigger picture that we need in order to successfully navigate our trials. Let's pray together. Our God and our Father, we are grateful to come before you and have instruction by your Spirit, by your Word, to speak into our hearts this morning. Help us to be, as we will learn in this book, to be ready listeners, quick to hear, and slow to speak, and slow to be reactive, and even as this passage will challenge us in that area, our, our temptation to misjudge you, to, to um, be reactive to trials, these stressors, these pressures that come in our lives, these things that test us out and uh, are, are meant to refine our character, but we, we sometimes don't pass them well. And um, so I pray this morning, Father, that we would have um, understanding and insight, wisdom, even as we're, we'll be looking at closely that process this morning. Uh, we ask uh, for um, your word to do its incisive work in our hearts, dividing uh, joint and marrow and soul and spirit and getting down to the, the attitudes and the motives of our own hearts. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. How many of you like to do puzzles? Raise your hands. Okay. How many like to do puzzles without the picture or without the, the, the box? No, no, but who, uh, there's a couple of you who really like that. How many of you would like to do a puzzle in the dark? Mm, I, I, didn't, I didn't see a single hand. Yeah, pretty dark. See, when we come to this, uh, this process of trials, we do need a bigger picture. We need a bigger understanding because sometimes with just what we're left with in just these verses, these key verses we looked at, consider pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And let endurance have its perfect result that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Now, that, there's some commands we looked at last week, and we could just very submissively in faith just obey those commands. But God knows that we're a questioning lot and that we struggle and that as the pressures increase and as the duration extends, we would be hard-pressed not to complain, not to be reactive. 
And so he's going to give us some tools in this passage this morning, verses 5 to 18, to help us understand and put basically the picture out in front of us of where the trial is supposed to be going, what he's trying to do in our life. And we need that because not every trial is the same. We said there are various. There are many kinds of trials. Some are small irritations. Some are big, heavy, weighty things that God may call us to bear for a number of years. And we're going to need to have the resources to get through them successfully. And so that's what we have in our passage before us. And I'll not take time because I have so much to cover to read the whole passage, but please review it. But look at verse 5 as we get into our passage, because one of the things that we need to do, and here's just the perspective that we need to have, that we saw last week, is that trials bring joy, and trials endured produce maturity. That's, that's kind of the summary sense of things. But how do we get from A to B? Well, first of all, God gives us a tremendous resource. It's called wisdom. It's called wisdom. And let's start with a definition. Wisdom is seeing life and ourselves from God's perspective and acting in cooperation with his will and his ways. Wisdom is seeing life and ourselves from God's perspective and acting in cooperation with his will and ways. God gives us that picture on the box. He gives us the picture on the box. It's called wisdom. And wisdom is the supernatural ability, the insight through the Spirit of God that God gives us to step outside of our circumstances and look at things the way he sees them. It's not that we are going to be omniscient like God, but God is not trying to torture us with trials. They're for our good, as we saw. They're for building us up, for bringing us to maturity, for developing character. And God wants to give us the inside on that. And so he gives us wisdom. Now notice, it seems obvious, but it says, But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men generously and without reproach or without ridicule, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. But let not that man expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Look, um, it may seem obvious. It may be the simple thing to just ask for it. When was the last time you had a trial and you didn't ask for wisdom? <laughs> I've been there. Why? Because trials catch us off guard. They create a, a disequilibrium. We're out of balance. And a lot of times they come on us and we had some irritation and we just snap and we say something out of our mouth that was really sinful. Or we get a hardened heart. It may be the simple thing, but as we'll find in chapter 4, verse 2, James answers this and he says, Hey, um, why don't you have what you asked for? Because you didn't even ask. He says, you do not have because you do not ask, James 4, 2. The simple thing, ask for wisdom. But there's some qualifiers. Ask expecting to receive without doubting. Ask expecting to receive without doubting. You know, um, a lot of times we'll go through the motions of something, but we really don't believe God's actually going to do it. 
we find reasons why God won't do something for us. He'll do it for somebody else, but he won't do it for me. You know, the first step to sin in the very first sin started with doubt, doubting God and his word. Hebrews chapter 3, write this down, verses 12 and 13 says that to doubt or to disbelieve God is sourced in an evil and unbelieving heart. How many, how many think that when we doubt God or we deny his character that that's an evil thing? It is. God said so, and we can see that every path that we take that moves us away from God starts with saying, hath God said, believing what Satan tells us? Has God really said that? Can you really trust God? God says, ask for wisdom. He'll give it. He'll give it abundantly. He'll give it generously. He won't ridicule you when you ask and say, well, haven't we been through this before, Brian? Haven't we had this trial before? And you're asking me again. No, God doesn't treat us like that. He calls us to ask. Verse 13 of Hebrews chapter 3 says, let me ask a question. How long does it take for, for sin to harden us? What does Hebrews say? A day. Lest any of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Day after day. Encourage one another. Day after day. We need to also ask with the intention to follow through. The intention to follow through. Seeking is part of this process. So in other words, a lot of times we pray and say, God, you know, speak out of heaven and give me some wisdom. There's a whole lot that the scriptures say that once we've prayed that prayer, we now put shoe leather to it. We actually go do something. We seek out wisdom. Book of Proverbs talks about the fact that we actually have to seek for it like silver. Pursue it ardently. And um, Brother Mike is going to be speaking next week. I don't want to share his thunder, but one of the greatest places to get wisdom is where? Proverbs, how about like from, from end to end here? God's revelation. God's revelation is a place of resource of wisdom, infallible, inerrant. Another place we need to look is wise counselors. Wise counselors. We need to seek after people who've lived longer, who've experienced more, who know God better, and ask them to engage to help us win our trial. See, we, um, we need to have this sense of commitment to the process. We're asking, but we're asking in faith. We're asking without any doubting. We're asking in a pursuit of that wisdom wherever God may reveal it to us. Our next paragraph we're looking at is the right assessment and reward for trials successfully finished. And I know it's a little wordy, but I kind of kind of ha have to get it there because um, this seems a little odd how it's tucked in here. And I think we have to harken back to what we talked about last week, the circumstances of the hearers. These people that were persecuted, they were driven away from home and family and land and whatever. They had to go someplace that they were new. They were newly planted. And then they tried how to regather their life and, you know, get about their business. But all the while, there's all these additional pressures. Hey, how are we going to take care of the family? Where am I going to work? Where are we going to live? Who can we trust? 
You can imagine all the myriad of things that they're facing. And as we'll see some other places in the book, they find some work. But we find some people that seem to be taking advantage of them. They may be unbelievers that are Jewish brethren but not yet a part of the faith. Or they may be some believers that have already gone back to this area and they're looking at it as an advantage situation to have some cheap labor, to negotiate a harder deal. And we see that there is this contrast through the book between the poor man and the rich man. We see in chapter 2 there's the temptation to show favoritism and jealousy. And in chapter 4 we see people worrying about riches and striving after them and creating conflicts. And in later in chapter 4 we see the rich addressed and we see them kind of putting their trust in their riches and their circumstances. And God says, wait a minute. You should be cautious in putting your trust in riches. And either way, we have this, this situation where we have this brother of humble circumstances, and he's told the glory in his high position. That seems contradictory, doesn't it? Except for the fact that if you turn over the page to James chapter 2, it says, Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? There's something that God has specially purposed for people who are poor and destitute, who live day to day and moment to moment, who, who because of those circumstances, they are forced close to the bosom of God in a dependent way, and God pours out blessing and great and expanded faith on those people. And they should glory in that trial because it has caused them to draw close to God and to experience those blessings. And that's their test. That is their test. And uh, the same principle we see there in Matthew 19, you know, the last shall be first and the first shall be last. And in God's pecking order of things, on judgment day, it's going to look a lot different than maybe how we think it's going to be. And then we have the rich. We have the rich. We turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6, and we'll be reminded here, because as has been said before from this pulpit, we kind of all probably fit in this category living here in America. But the rich also has a test. It's a test of what he does with his wealth. Is he controlled by it, or is he controlling it as a steward and distributing it and not getting caught up in what seems to be his fortress of protection in this life. But he's constantly got his eye on the future and on a heavenly wealth that he's laying aside. Notice 1 Timothy chapter 6. <clears throat> instruct those, verse 17. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Look, the wealthy have advantages, no doubt about it. And in the purposes of God, he's distributed to these people and given them the power to make wealth as part of his design for them. And we shouldn't be jealous of that. At the same time, the rich, the wealthy need to say, hey, but this is not mine. What if I didn't have all these benefits? What if God didn't bless me? What if I didn't health, have health or intellect or opportunity to make this wealth. There were so many things that I couldn't control but have turned out for good for me. 
instruct these people to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Look, God blesses, and I'm, I'm grateful. First Corinthians says there's not many wealthy um, in comparison to all that have lived and functioned as believers in Christ. But we should be grateful that God has distributed and empowered people to, to make wealth and then open their hearts generously. These are the people that fund ministries, that send missionaries, that cause the gospel to go out. And, and, and Paul says here to Timothy, look, they can have a foundation for the future. They can pass the test. And it is a test to have wealth, to not be in a daily dependent state, but be reminded that every breath you draw is still from the gracious hand of God. The thing here is both can pass their test. Each has the opportunity to respond to God under whatever their trial happens to be. And we notice that each one can be rewarded. Let's read our passage, but let the humble, the brother of humble circumstances glory in his high position, and let the rich man glory in his humiliation, because like flowering grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass, and its flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. But blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. The, um, in Greek, there's what they call the genitive, the way the, the preposition is written here. And it can actually be translated, the crown which is life. It has this idea that Jesus talked about, that he came to bring life and he came to bring it abundantly. That, that there's a sense of joy and purpose an abundance that's not tied to whether we have a lot of things or a little of things. There's something that we can grab hold to life indeed. And I've talked to wealthy people who are completely unaffected by their money. Matter of fact, they have a great sense of, of stewardship and responsibility. And what gives them more joy than anything is to give it away and to see it powerfully work in people's lives and change people's complete circumstances, especially through the power of the gospel. They can have that which is true, truly, truly life. It's abundant because it's Christ's life inside us. It's that, that development that the trial brings out, and it causes us to be more like Christ. And we'll not go into all these verses, but it's, it's Christ in you, the hope of glory. And whether it's the person who's destitute or the person who's wealthy, they both have their eyes on the future, to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. Now, there is another thing that God wants us to know about trials, is that sometimes when we fail them, we get reactionary and we respond harshly to God. And uh, let's read verses 13 to 16. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it, brings, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. 
Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. You see, one of the deceptions, again, we go back to is Satan puts that, that little whisper in our ear and he says, you can't really trust God. Look how things are really going for you. Look, God, God's abandoned you. Look how many times you failed that test. And we can be alienated from God. We can start trying to put the puzzle together in the dark and we forget to look at the real bigger picture. We get angry, we blame, and we misjudge God's character. That's what's going on. We say, God, you're tempting me with evil. But God can't be tempted by evil. It's not in his nature. Any test he sends is not designed for us to fail. It's an opportunity for us to have our character refined, for weaknesses to be brought to the surface so they can be addressed, and so we can grow. I don't know about you, but I've been in this place a few times over my walk with God, about 40 years now, 40 plus. And there's been places where I've gotten angry because I didn't like how long it was taking. I didn't like the things that I was being called to go through. I didn't want to be there anymore, like we talked about. We didn't want to remain under that and bear up under it. And so I bolted, or I cursed God and got angry that he is not taking this away. I can tell you by experience, that doesn't turn out well. You cannot alienate yourself from God and all his resources and shake your fist and get angry at him over the trials he's sovereignly ordained and think that's going to go well. Matter of fact, it can go worse. And so we need to judge God properly. Need a point of levity here, as Luther Heggs would say in The Ghost of Mr. Chicken. Let me clarify this. Have you seen that? Have you seen that movie? I'm, this is a classic. It's ha- almost Halloween. You gotta watch this movie. All right, Don Knotts. Let me clarify this, and that's what James says. Let me explain really what's happening when you're tempted. It's not God behind it. It's you. You're the problem. Notice, we are Lord. It's the actual what the, the word there. Each one is tempted when he is carried away or that he's drawn away and he's lured by his own lust. Better word is desire. You see how this works and sometimes how a test can become a temptation is God allows us in just in the course of everyday life, we have certain drives inside. God created them there. We have a drive for sleep, for hunger, for sex, for adventure, for rest, for uh, intellectual curiosity, for being creative. All these things God put in us, they are wired, hardwired in us, and they, they draw us in good ways or they can draw us in bad ways. And that's the test. The test is to allow that drive to be drawn the right way. And we know what the right way is by asking God for wisdom, and God explains every one of those areas, whether it's achievement or disciplining ourselves and not sleeping in, you know, five hours overdue, or whatever it is, or taking that extra bite of cake, or looking at that thing, or whatever it is. 
God gives us the way of escape we saw last week, right? That we'll be able to bear up under it. And so this is how it works. Just like the fish that's shaded under the roots of the tree in the stream and the lures dropped and it's shiny and it's it's pleasing to the eye go back to genesis right and it can make one wise and we start moving to it and moving to it and then we snag it or snagged by it he uses another metaphor here he says that it's kind of like a process it's conceived we can talk about a womb we can talk about a seed we have a seed that is sown it's germinated or fertilized and then it grows up and then it flourishes and when it comes to that place it brings forth death it eventually causes a reaping to happen in our experience when we've taken the bait there's this process here I heard a preacher preach it when I was a little kid sow a thought reap an action sow an action reap a habit sow a habit reap a character so a character reap a legacy or a destiny that's what sin wants to do it wants to destroy us it's playing all the time satan is behind it his evil minions are behind it and we are because of the fall we are bent to want to go that way and we need to have a right understanding about God, not get angry at him, and we also need to understand ourselves so that we can hold ourselves in the sphere of sanctification and honor, 1 Thessalonians says. Conduct ourselves during that trial, during that test, by taking accountability for maybe we didn't put ourselves in a place to succeed. Now it's final. And that's why he says, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. He wants us to really understand this process. Not get caught up by it. To be aware of it. My professor, when he was giving the illustration about the fish, he says, you know, if you fish, sometimes you actually know that the fish can spit the lure. You ever heard that term? <laughs> like, there's that spot. You know they have it, and you need to set the lure. And they spit it. <laughs> they, they, they figured something's not right. And that's kind of the same reaction we're supposed to have when we're tempted. You know, we have that, that divine instruction that says, flee immorality. Turn the other way. And we're given those instructions on how to split that, uh, spit that lure before it gets set and comes about in an act of sin. Verses 17 and 18 kind of concludes, helps us look at this in kind of an overarching way. Reminder that the divine allower or sender of trials, God does both. He allows certain things to happen and they're in his sovereign plan. And there's certain things he, he directs. 
You remember Job? You know, what did, what did he do with Job? Well, Satan wanted to torment Job. And God said, okay, I'll allow it, but only this floor. Only this floor. When we come to this last two verses, this is really kind of overarching. It's a reminder that God is the one that gives the wisdom, and he also is the one that gives the picture on the box to the puzzles of trials. He shows us how we can navigate them, how we can be successful, because it's in his nature. This is his true nature. Every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. God is, his character is, is unchanging. It's, it's not a respecter of persons. He didn't decide to do something more difficult, more hard for you than someone else because he has favoritism. He didn't set you up to fail. All trials that God allows or sends has an ultimate goal for our good. Trials are a good thing and a perfecting or maturing gift. We said last week, we don't ever get to maturity without them. That's God's training ground. Those are the lessons that he's divinely ordained and instituted so that we can grow up to Christ-likeness. They help us to become more like him, to look like him. The sec- second thing in verse 18, in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we might be, as it were, the first fruits among his creatures. This is, a, this is an amazing thing. Trials, and wrap your mind around this, trials dignify our holy calling and our high standing as a new creation. Think of all that God has created from the very beginning, those six days of creation. And God looked at human beings, and he said it was very good. And he endowed us with responsibility and rulership, even. And the way that we grow up into a place of responsibility and eternity to come, and by the way, we mentioned this last week, This is just a small little training ground, these uh, 70, 80, maybe years that we have. God is preparing us for all eternity. There is works and responsibilities that will go forward into eternity that we will be a part of ruling and reigning. We will be a part of a, a, a creative explosion of God's worlds to come. And this is how we get ready for that. This is how we prove ourselves worthy of that responsibility. This is, in the realm of all creation, this is a process, an experience that Christ entrusts to us only. Not to animals, not to the angels. First Peter says, even the righteous angels, they, they are trying to get on the edge of of, of heaven and peer in, in wonder of what God is doing with us. They long to look into our salvation. Because the angels had one test 
in time past. All the horde of angels, they have one test. Were they going to follow Lucifer and a third fell? And the other two-thirds showed loyalty to God. That one test has determined their destiny forever. God not only gave us through Adam and Eve the test in the garden, but through the second Adam, he's given us an opportunity to be tested again, not just once, but repeatedly over time in the blessing and the wisdom of his purposes to, to even fail and fail again until we get it right and we pass and we go forward and we gain maturity. What an amazing thing that God has done for us. What a dignifying thing. What a thing that clarifies the high standing and the regard that the Godhead themselves have stored it into us. And that's how we should look at trials. That's where we should get the bigger picture to understand not only, uh, you know, the basics, to count it joy, to let it endure, but how we actually get from that point to a point of successfully passing them and growing up to maturity in Christ-likeness. So that, as James says, that we'd be lacking in nothing. We'd be fully prepared and equipped to face the next ones and the next ones until we grow up to an adult, a fully mature believer in Christ. This is not, this might be easily explained in the last 35 minutes. It's not easily traversed, is it? But we do have the instructions. We do have a bigger and fuller picture of what we need to do and how we need to do it and how long we need to do it. And we have a, definitely a bigger picture and understanding of the generous and wise and giving heart of our God. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful that, that this is just not some um, theory. This is not some pie in the sky. That This is very much rubber meets the road. And and if anything, we can draw hope by knowing that the Scriptures say that you were tested in every way just as we are. And yet you, in your humanness, in your uh, chosen finiteness for a time as you walked this earth in, in human skin and bones, that you were tested, but you passed the test successfully. And that should give us hope that we can endure our trials, our difficulties in the same manner. Thank you that your grace is sufficient, that we can come to the throne of grace and we can get, gain grace and mercy in our time of need, that we can gain wisdom from a generous, giving God, and we can choose to say yes to you and no to the flesh and no to the temptations of Satan. And we can use these trials to draw all the closer to you. We pray it will be so. We pray that you also help us to be encouraged, reminding us that Hebrews 12 said, there's this great cloud of witnesses. There are these saints that have gone before. They have laid their struggle down. They are waiting their reward as well as we. And they are looking out. They are looking in upon us, and they are cheering us on. They are saying, us, saying to us, you can win. 
You can endure. You can bear up until progress is gained. Help us to have these eyes of faith, we pray in Christ's name.